0: Today's show is sponsored by Cloud Zero. For software driven companies focused on growing margins, Cloud Zero is the only cloud cost intelligence platform that puts engineering in control by connecting technical decisions to business results. By analyzing cloud services like AWS and Snowflake, Cloud Zero provides real time cost insights that help you maximize margins. Engineering teams can answer critical questions like Who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What's the cost impact of re-architecting this application? With cost anomaly alerts via Slack, product-specific data views, and granular engineering context that makes it easy to investigate any cost, CloudZero is your complete cloud cost intelligence platform, connecting the dots between high-level trends and individual line items. Join companies like Drift, Rabbit 7 and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com cloudcast to get started today. That's cloudzero.com slash cloudcast.
1: Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world.
0: Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hope everybody is doing well. We continue to plow through February. We're getting close to the Uh, sort of middle of the end of february and uh you know good news on the horizon we're continuing to see uh the vaccine uh, efficacy seems to work we're seeing good feedback from that hopefully it would go faster i know we all want to sort of get back to some normalcy get be able to travel do live events and other stuff like that but uh you know Hopefully you're you're helping out your uh, your friends, your family. hope everybody's staying safe and doing well. So, with that, we're going to get right to cloud news of the week. And there was a lot of money that changed hands this week in cloud news of the week. So, uh, a couple three acquisitions we want to highlight. Um, you know, obviously there's there's a lot going on. But uh, first one was uh, Palo Alto Networks acquired DevSecOps startup Bridgecrew for two hundred million dollars. Uh, this sort of continues the trends of uh, DevSecOps acquisitions. We saw uh, Red Hat acquire StackRox uh, not too long ago, or at least it announced the intent to acquire StackRox a couple of weeks ago, and now Palo Alto acquiring uh, BridgeCrew for $200 million. So DevSecOps continues to be a hot space. We see you know more and more companies beginning to shift left and, and begin to understand you know the importance of software supply chains and uh, sort of runtime security and things like that. Second two really are in the logging space. So we saw we're starting to see a run on logging companies getting acquired. Uh, CrowdStrike acquired logging startup Humio for $400 million, and uh, Centennial uh, Sentinel One uh, acquired startup Scalar for $155 million. So two logging companies coming off the market, uh, about a half a billion dollars in uh, in MA happening right there. So interesting to see the logging space continue to uh, evolve. Obviously, we've seen uh, you know, Elastic do relatively well, but uh, also Elastic uh, signaling to the market that they're changing their licensing scheme. And I think that may be opening some opportunities for other companies in the logging space to uh, sort of step up and say, hey, you know, we have some, some alternative ways to do logging. Logging is always a, a challenge, how to how to scale it, uh, how much data to keep, how long to retain things, how fast can you uh, take in logs, and, and then how do you actually surface any interesting information from that, uh, you know, make the information uh, valuable. So, uh, and then we also saw we had seen uh, IBM acquire Instana not too long ago. So again, uh, logging is another hot space in uh, these days. And then finally, the third one uh, that's on our list, well, actually the fourth one on our list, but uh, third sort of bucket that we were talked about, um, was we saw Databricks, who recently took a very, very big uh, funding round, um, is natively integrating into GCP, so I highlight this because this is a trend that we talked about on the Sunday Perspective Show this past week, uh, kind of about what things are going to do in the future. So uh, it's interesting to see more and more of these commercial software companies who, you know, not only are moving from being commercial software companies, but you know, having a SaaS like offering. Uh, you know, we've seen a number of companies do this. We've seen Elastic and Mongo and Red Hat OpenShift and VMware and Confluent and, and several others uh, who've been out there, but again i think this is interesting sort of trend to watch another data point to look at is you know this idea of being a native service within certain clouds right and i think this is going to uh, it's going to be a big shift in terms of how uh, end customers consume these, right? They want to more and more. If they're going to be in the cloud, they want to consume things natively in the cloud. And natively not just means you know a native service, but it means native billing, native security, native console and UI, and all those sort of things. So um, I think we're going to see this trend continue. We've been we've been seeing it over the last couple of years, but uh, you know it, it's it's going to not only have sort of first order effects of being fully integrated into into the new clouds, but also you know, sort of second order effects, maybe even third order effects of, you know, does this make it easier for them to get acquired at some point by one of the large cloud providers? Does this uh, disincentivize them from being acquired by the loud, large cloud providers because uh, they may have offerings in multiple clouds? So, you know, very, very interesting to sort of watch this trend. Um, I think it's, it's you know, something we need to sort of see. I think we, we will probably see, some trend happen. We'll see some sort of counter trends happen with it and all, but uh, kind of wanted to highlight that one because uh, Databricks, obviously, uh, getting a lot of press these days, is being you know a big counterbalance to uh, a lot of the success that uh, Snowflake is seeing. So. That we're going to wrap it. Uh, wrap up cloud news of the week. Uh, lots going on this week. Uh, have a very interesting interview with a, an old friend of the show, uh, Joseph Jax. JJ is going to come on and talk to us about what's going on in commercial open source and really kind of the trends that he's seeing. He follows this on a full time basis, and uh, we're going to kind of dig into you know what's happening. Uh, where we're seeing growth, where we might see growth in the future, and also, you know, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, kind of the interaction between new public cloud licensing and and what's going on in the, or new open source licensing and what's going on in public cloud. So we'll get to that right after the break. Today's show is sponsored by BMC. And BMC wants to know, is your business on its A-game? The A-game is when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A-game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash agame. That's bmc.com slash agame. Today's show is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring analytics platform for cloud scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog provides dashboarding, alerting, application performance monitoring, and log management in one tightly integrated platform, so you can get end-to-end visibility quickly. Be proactive with your monitoring strategy and catch issues before your clients are impacted. Start managing the overall health of your environment with a free Datadog trial. Go to datadog.com slash cloudcast for the free trial. That's datadog.com slash cloudcast. And we're back. And folks, as you know, you know, uh, open source has always been uh, one of the things that we've been really interested in this, uh, in this show with this community. I, there's a lot of people who are, Not only interested in in the projects and the innovation, but really looking at how that eventually becomes something that uh, either becomes a commercial company, becomes something that you're using within your organization to solve a problem. And and part of open source is, as much as it's about community building and awesome innovation and technology, is... you know there's usually got to be money there somewhere either for the companies that are that are driving this and funding it or uh, for the people that are using it. So every couple of years we we'd like to come back and uh, and kind of pick the brains of really a good friend of the show, long-time friend of the show. It's always good to have uh, Joseph JJ uh, JJ Joseph Jacks, uh founder general partner of OSS Capital. JJ, welcome back to the show. It's been too long, man.
1: Oh, thanks Brian. Really appreciate you having me again.
0: <laughs> we have uh we were lucky enough to to get to know you uh, a number of years back, right when Kubernetes was first getting started and you were uh, actually creating the very first uh, KubeCon event, even before it you know, became part of the CNCF, uh, for folks who may not know of you or your background or some of the things that you've been working on, uh, tell us a little bit about you know, kind of what you're focused on these days and, and, and kind of how you got to be incoming, so passionate about open source.
1: Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, first I have to say I have amazing parents that homeschooled me and gave me a lot of freedom to be curious and, uh, wander a lot as a kid. Yeah. Um, my older brother's a programmer and I kind of, uh, learned through osmosis, uh, how to write, you know, simple Perl and, uh, shell scripts and, uh, you know, learn basics of C++ and stuff. I never got into programming like as a career, um, but, uh, kind of, you know, found myself in the tech industry doing like sales sales engineering stuff for different like enterprise uh companies uh technical products and stuff over the years and um actually got really lucky like i think my second job my second like real job ever was i was i was a salesperson at this um software company selling an etl data integration product that had this open source kind of community and this open core model and this was back in 2010 and i kind of learned a lot about that just by, you know, being one of the salespeople and touching all the different organizations that interact with sales, whether it's like marketing, finance, or, you know, operations and, and pre post sales and, and, and all of that. Um, and I guess over the, 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 years that followed, I worked at a, a handful of like totally proprietary technology companies like Tipco and, um, worked at Instratius, which is like an early multi-cloud management vendor, I think Dell, Dell acquired, um, and then I found myself, uh, I, I learned about the, the Apache Mesos project. Um, and I actually kind of cold emailed the Mesosphere, uh, like info at Mesosphere. Uh, I, I noticed that like Andreessen Horowitz did, did the seed round. And I was like, oh, this is an interesting company. Uh, maybe a cool place to, to see if I could work there or something. Um, so I, I, I convinced them to uh, let me do some like, consulting stuff. And uh, I, like, I wrote like their first like employee playbook manual thing. And, um, it did, did, different projects there. Um, and that was, I think early 2014, um, a guy, Craig McClucky, was hanging out at the Mesosphere offices, uh, bouncing around. And, uh, I, I can say this now since his history is, uh, so far, so far along. This this seems like, this seems like eternities ago. Um, but Google uh, eventually uh, decided to release Kubernetes as an independent project instead of basing it on, on Mesos. And they sort of were, were they were seriously looking at Mesos for a while because the Mesos project is kind of the uh, kind of academic predecessor to Kubernetes in a lot of ways. Right. Um, right and i uh i kind of got involved uh in the middle of all that and and with you know a couple other people um started this company kismatic which like like you mentioned was like the first kubernetes kind of startup um yeah that was that was a really amazing learning experience um obviously got incredibly lucky again with just you know attaching attaching myself and my my time and my energy to this amazing open source project kubernetes I um, uh, also got super lucky to, to you know start the conference around it and, and help with that. And then, um, uh, yeah, I just learned a lot over the over the next few years after uh, kind of going through all of that. Um, and I, I just developed, I don't know, like I kind of developed this abstract interest in companies that are based on an open source technology. And if you understand open source, you understand that, it's fundamentally different than freemium. Like a lot of people think, open source is just freemium. Like you have a free thing, it gets you leads, it gets you marketing, and then that's it. Um, in reality, though, open source is like profoundly a lot more than that. It actually, you know, if you if you open up to it, almost like a religion. Uh, obviously, it's it's more pragmatic than that, um, but it, it has the potential to kind of transform everything that that it touches in terms of how people behave and how they interact, Um, like how they build products, how they market products, how they sell products, how they distribute products, how they, you know, deal with markets and competitive dynamics and stuff like that. And I just really started to think more about that. And so I decided to blog and kind of write about kind of these observations at the intersection of open source and building companies based on open source. And I kind of eventually discovered more clear language for what I was kind of writing. And um, what I've come come to believe over the last, you know, recent couple few years is that uh, open source uh, in the context of being the sort of fundamental basis for a startup or a company uh, in a direct way, not in an indirect way, but like in a really direct way, like like Red Hat is to Linux or Cloudera is to Hadoop or Databricks, Exist a Spark or you know GitLab and GitHub are to Git. Um, it really fundamentally changes the composition and the sort of like um, categorization of the company. So I, I started to use this term "costs" commercial open source as a way to describe those companies. And for me, costs is like a type of company, um, and it, it's completely orthogonal to this term "Foss" or "FOSS," which just refers to you know, the free software and open source paradigm, the movement, uh, you know, the innovation model, license model, but it's not a type of company. Open source is not a type of company, but uh, commercial open source or costs in my view kind of is. And I don't really care as much if people use that terminology or something else. I just, I would like to kind of live in a world where people think clearly about the differences between things. Um, And so, yeah, I, I kind of stumbled onto this, conviction and belief that a fund should exist focused and dedicated on commercial open source startups and companies broadly and nothing else and be fully dedicated to that. Um, so that was kind of the, the origination of OSS Capital which we started late 2018. And we've been building that out for a couple of years. We haven't made any fund announcements uh, but I, I hope that, that, uh, that that's gonna change in, in, the, in the coming months. And, um, yeah, we've been kind of we've been doing doing investing. We've also been uh, kind of building a community around this. So we also run Open Course Summit, which is the sort of commercial open source company ecosystem conference. And we bring together founders and builders and investors and enterprises and developers and analysts and anyone interested in learning more about commercial open source companies and, and how they figure things out. Across a wide range of business models, across a, a wide range of technology areas. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I wake up every day and uh, you know consider myself super lucky to be working on everything I'm working on.
0: Yeah, very very cool. Um, <clears throat> I want to dive into, you know, kind of what's what's going on today and, and and some of the unique things going on. But just real quick for for folks who are maybe newer to this space or, or haven't been around it um, as long as others, give me give me real quick, give me the, the two minute sort of, you know, let's call it like from Red Hat sort of inception to like where, you know, MongoDB and and Elastic are today. Like what have been the the three or four kind of big steps or the things that have kind of changed from maybe that original commercial OSS company model, which was kind of, uh, you know, take the open source, Package it really well, and then do support to the new stuff that people are trying to do today. Whether it's you know offering things as a SaaS or sort of free, you know, premium, premium type of things. Like, give folks the kind of the the three or four kind of pillars that you're always thinking about in this space.
1: Um, I'm not. I'm not sure. I think of it as pillars as much, but like, there's definitely lots of inputs that have driven change and driven growth and evolution, like dramatic evolution in in this category since the mid nineties. Um, and part of, part of the benefit of focusing intensely on this for you know, a few years now and doing nothing else is I've gotten to know like pretty much all the people that have built all these companies, including people like Bob Young, the founder of co-founder of red hat and uh, many others. And you we know, have privileged to have had a lot of those people speak at our, our conference. Um, I think probably the biggest drivers for what is the, building block and the sort of primary force of, uh, innovation in this whole area is open source. Um, but the driver for open source growth and adoption, I would say you could probably closely correlate with the rise and growth of the internet, um, from the mid nineties to now, you know, I guess, you know, we've started, started with 50 million people on the internet or something. And, now we've got four four plus billion people on the internet uh, just in a sh- you know short twenty years. Uh, twenty years in the, in the history of uh, human species is like a blink of an eye, right? <laughs> um, you know, very short period of time. Um, and so I think that um, that's probably the biggest driver is that frankly, just like the rise of the internet. Uh, obviously, this has affected many many other areas of um, the world and the technology industry and stuff. But maybe the second biggest thing is that people have realized the the most important skill in growing this kind of digital economy uh, is being able to write software and being able to build software and program and code. Um, And, you know, I, I don't really know if there's any single data source for this, but there were probably, you know, a million or a handful of a few million professional programmers or uh, people who were like really dedicated to it as a career writing code and building software in the mid nineties. And now there's, you know, something in the order of, you know, maybe 50 million plus. And so that number's grown a lot. I think we're seeing that number grow even faster. So the number of developers, the number of people writing software, building software uh, is, is really uh, uh, another huge factor. And, and, and it's a, it's a massive metric to look at, um, the reason I think those two things are, are big drivers for open source, like the first thing, the rise of the internet, the second thing, the rise of this developer kind of profession uh, globally, is that both of those technologies like really depend on open source to exist. Like, uh, you know, at a fundamental like existential level, the internet really would not have existed in the way that it does without things like Linux and C and C++ and PHP and Apache and like, you know, early on and then over time, all these open protocols. And we've seen a lot of proprietary applications and services and networks built on top of the internet, but really all of those are based on open source. They, they, They comprise hundreds of thousands of libraries of open source that other developers wrote. And then finally, I think the developers would never have really been able to be as nearly as productive and impactful for the world uh, without open source. Because you, know, you talk to any developer, any programmer, it's like, you know, what's your primary you know, tool of choice or uh, community of choice that you're using or learning from? And um, I don't know, 95% of the time, it's going to be some open source library or tool, or tool or technology. And so open source is really fundamental on those dimensions. I think the big evolution we've seen in the software industry, which is a separate thing as well, is you know, we, we really saw the beginnings of the software industry happen in the mid-70s, so the early 70s. And you know, Oracle and Microsoft were founded. Um, interestingly, about 10 years later, we saw the same kind of creation of this kind of open source or free software industry. That's not really an industry, but it's sort of like a movement. And that was started by Richard Stallman. Um, And so if you were to trace both parallel industries or movements over the last 40 40 plus years, 40, 45 years, you'll notice a lot of really interesting distinctions. On one hand, the proprietary software industry has grown from zero to something on the order of five trillion plus dollars today that includes, um, you know, all the cloud and SaaS companies that, that are you know, really fundamentally proprietary software companies. They sell a proprietary service. But then if you look at the free software and the open source kind of movement in industry, it's really hard to measure economically. It's kind of impossible to measure economically. So you can't use that same metric of like how valuable it is uh, because it's almost like invaluable. Um, but it's, it's had similarly profound kind of... Um, Consequences for the way like market economies work and digital innovation works and all kinds of things. I, th- I think the the part of your question that was asking about like you know ha- how things evolved from Red Hat and what Red Hat's business model was all about to now in this kind of um, interesting growth that we're seeing in, in in companies like Elastic and HashiCorp, Confluent, Mongo, and you know JFrog and, and many others is we're really seeing open source be used as a way to kind of replace traditional product development and product distribution approaches. And there's a lot of emergent and, you know, sort of new phenomena that are, that are not that well understood. And I, I, I acknowledge that every day and kind of everything we're doing is in service of making all of that more understood and better, um, better codifiable and 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 sort of more 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 scientific than than an art. I think there's there's always going to be an artistic element to building open source projects and communities, but um, on the business model side of things, yeah, we've definitely seen a big evolution kind of away from just support services, insurance policy as a business as a business model, and much more towards actually building differentiated experiences that in most cases are powered by proprietary IP uh, that is wrapped uh, around open source at the core or or sort of an open core model. Uh, There's another interesting historic historical like relic and maybe pejorative connotation to this open core term. I've adopted it because I think it's the simplest and most precise way to describe companies as like an architectural paradigm uh, that are commercial open source companies they all have this one thing in common, which is that they have this open source core. And, you know, I, I don't think of open core as a business model. I think of Red Hat as, as open core, like their open core is Linux and their crust, the proprietary you know, value add around that open core is, you know, the way they harden their binaries uh, and packages and the whole distribution supply chain and their, their insurance uh, policy business model effectively. Those are things that are very proprietary to Red Hat. They're their brand, their mark, their trademark, and so on. And they sell those things, and customers pay money in exchange for those for those valuable goods and services. So I don't, I don't really think of Open Core as a business model, but I do think that what fascinates me like endlessly about uh, commercial open source companies or cost companies is that you know the, the the company itself is kind of loosely coupled, or in a lot of ways like almost decoupled from the open source technology that serves as the basis for the company. Uh, And what that allows for is something really profound. It allows for the company to experiment and evolve many business models, either in parallel or over time. And the big difference between that and a fully proprietary or kind of closed core, uh, if you will, technology company is that they don't really have that decoupling or that loose coupling the technology and the ip for that company is tightly coupled to the company it's not loosely coupled or decoupled and so what that means is once a closed core proprietary company goes down a path of constructing a business model and scaling that business model they're typically not always but typically stuck with that one business model there's a lot of examples for that um, it does take a lot of energy to shift and evolve and, and, and move away from one business model to another uh, in that kind of world. Whereas on the flip side with commercial open source, I think it's a lot easier and a lot more fluid to evolve business models. Um, and I don't, I don't think we're going to see cloud and offering up open source as a differentiated experience managed service as the final destination business model for monetizing open source Uh, In this context, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of evolution, a lot of change. I don't necessarily have any proposals or ideas on like what the next evolution of a business model is going to be after, uh, you know, uh, selling, selling the software as a service. Um, But I think there's, there's a lot of exciting developments and people working on really interesting things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I I want to shift gears a little bit. um, Talk about the the money side of things. Uh, You know, we've seen um you know a lot of things happening like you mentioned from the cloud providers offering more uh, oss centric things um you know whether it's mongo or elastic or you know hadoop or, or something else um and and obviously we've seen some some responses from you know these sort of originating companies that that built the the original open source project right we've seen some things happening cuz of licensing and so forth um i i'm curious and something i've always wondered about is you know a lot of times we see, uh, you know, some some projects originate as sort of spun out of one of the the big cloud companies. It spun out of a Twitter. It spun out of a LinkedIn. It spun out of a Google or whatever. But those things still get funded VC funded, right? It's not it's not as if uh, you know Google and Apple and others are, are necessarily funding them. They get VC funded. I'm, I'm curious. I know you guys obviously have a sort of a perspective and a bias uh, at OSS Capital, but I, but I'm curious. What are you hearing amongst the rest of the VC community is is this fear of you know I, I don't know how to exit because Google's or AWS or Azure's just going to sort of consume my project and offer it as a service or like are they are they still bullish to invest in you know these originating OSS projects is there is there less bullishness? I know you guys are obviously very bullish, but what, what do you hear amongst the rest of the VC community? Are we still going to see a lot of funding? of these projects given kind of a stance that, that the cloud providers now can take in terms of, you know, having, having an at scale offering that can, that can happen at any given moment.
1: Yeah, there was a really interesting Twitter thread between Kelsey Hightower, the uh, incredible, like sort of um, uh, unique and uh, just really powerful voice in the, in the DevOps and cloud and open source communities at, go- at Google, Kelsey, Kelsey works at Google And uh, the the folks over at Cockroach Labs, uh, which is a a source available now, but effectively open source uh, implementation of the Spanner technology inside of Google. So Spanner is proprietary, and it's a distributed, uh, geo-replicated, transactional SQL database, uh, and Cockroach is basically an open source implementation of that, right? So Cockroach is a very well-funded venture company. I think they've raised... uh, 500 million plus in venture funding. Uh, they're, they're, I think the last round priced them at two billion dollars last month. Mm-hmm. And Spanner is probably one of the most successful um, data services in, in Google Cloud. So Kelsey was saying, "Hey, look at this benchmark I just did. Uh, I can spin up. Actually, you know what? Let me just pull up a tweet so I have the exact um, uh, so I have the exact uh, uh, data points that Kelsey was. Uh, okay,
0: you can you can para- for time. You can paraphrase it. And we'll put the link in the show notes. Uh,
1: but I, I pulled it up here. So Spanner's um, services running on um, uh, it looks like three node single region, two point seven terabyte configuration, and um, and uh, Kelsey did the comparative. Spanner is costing twenty seven hundred dollars a month, and Cockroach DB is costing seven thousand three hundred dollars a month. So a little bit more expensive. Um, and, and it was really interesting to see the responses from folks. Uh, but in particular, uh, a guy named Jesse Azell uh, responded: uh, "People are willing to pay more for superior products that avoid lock-in. Google should acquire Cockroach while it is still cheap." <laughs> you know, this, so this is just an interesting take. But like, ultimately, the question you're you're asking has a number of ways of of, of getting answered. One is um, there's this perennial question of like. Why are you building a startup? Google is just going to copy you and kill you. Uh, same same could be said of Amazon. Right. Um, and then also like uh, young startup, why are you building your software as a service? Uh, aren't all the cloud providers just going to kill you? Like regardless of if it's open source or not, like the open source thing is kind of you know independent of that. And I think we're just going to continue to see private equity and the venture community, because this has been the case for twenty plus years, uh, invest in innovative. Entrepreneurs building software and services and products that address customer pain points in astronomically enormous markets. Um, if you look at the IT market, it's a you know five plus trillion dollar in spend per year market, and that you know encompasses all on-premise software and services and um, you know hardware and all kinds of things. The cloud is still really early. So if you look at the total spend on cloud, I think it's about $150 billion a year in spend across all the major cloud providers. That's for sort of core platform as a service, infrastructure as a service. Then if you look at SaaS, there's maybe another, I don't know, $300 billion a year in spend just in SaaS, all the SaaS companies that might be a little bit more now. So we still have many trillions of dollars to shift over uh, to new models. And the reality is the world doesn't like shift over from old models to new models overnight. Like there's this gradual incremental kind of heterogeneous evolution of, of the way systems evolve and markets evolve and private equity uh, is an asset class. And it's a way that people want to invest in companies that are growing and addressing market, uh, market changes and evolution. So, I think to answer your question on on those lines, um, I think the answer is yes, we're gonna continue to see VCs and private equity invest a lot of money in companies that are going after growth markets and competitive markets, even if the cloud providers are doing really well. For one simple reason is, which is that these markets are still pretty early on, like, and they're still growing and evolving. uh, And the opportunities are really huge. In terms of open source, I wrote a, a blog post last month um, because we're living in pretty crazy, uh, bubbly times in terms of uh, P ratios and you know revenue multiples and all kinds of things like that. Um, and I, I and I said that there's this reckoning coming. I like sort of channeling the the John Grisham uh, uh, reckoning book. Uh, and um, I I really deeply believe that there's a lot of founders out there who have an open source project. There's going to be a thousand stars or so, and they've they've come up with a, a, a compelling pitch deck. And probably something on the order of like 100 plus uh, commercial open source uh, startups have raised millions of dollars. And really, they're going to have to figure out how to build businesses. They're going to have to figure out how to go after markets, address markets, and build businesses. And frankly, a lot of those founders don't know how to do that. And they're either going to have to get coached and counseled by investors who've backed them who do not understand open source and they're going to get very bad advice that will hurt their companies, or hopefully uh, we'll find a way to get to them and help them because, because we understand open source pretty deeply. Um, You know, there's also a handful of other investors that do understand open source deeply as well. So folks like, you know, uh, put some, uh, some of our our frenemies out there, but mostly people I respect greatly, people like Martin Casado, Peter Levine at Andreessen, Mike Volpe at Index, uh, Salil Deshpande at, uncorrelated, formerly like Bain. Just, you know, there's really a small handful of people on earth in the venture community who have really extensive and deep experience here and have different points of view and different ways of, of looking at things. You know, Peter Fenton and, and, and Chaitan over at Benchmark. So there's a there's a really small universe of people um, who've actually invested heavily in this area. And I'm, I'm hopeful that, that uh, a lot of the work that we're doing with our conference and our, and our media is going to be able to help founders kind of navigate uh, how to invest their capital and build their communities in in a sustainable way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think to answer your question, uh, we're definitely going to see continued investment in this area for probably, you know, the next 10, 15 plus years.
0: Yeah. Um, I want to I want to get your perspective. I know you, you talked a little bit before about, um, you know, this idea of sort of loosely coupling your your company's business model to to the way that you build software, the way that you license the software, and I'm I'm curious. I want to kind of litmus test that against you know what what you've seen happen with say with Mongo and with Elastic, um, obviously because they've been the most visible in the news. They they kind of they change their license. Um, uh, obviously, it's it has some implications of you know if somebody's going to take the software, run it as a managed service. You have to give all of it back. Uh, you know, we, we've seen some, some implications with, with AWS with that. But, but I'm curious, you know, what, what's your general take or, or how do you kind of think about this idea of uh, I'm, I'm creating a license that now is going to kind of impact what you can do right. as a business or what the community can do as a business? Is, it, is that a good thing? Is it, is it just a necessary thing in the world we compete in? Like, How do you, how do you kind of think about you know, th- this change as a whole?
1: Personally, I don't believe Mongo or Elastic needed to make those license changes in order to grow at the rate they wanted to grow or to deal with competitive issues. Personally, I I don't believe they needed to make those changes. And the reason I say that is the following. Um, Almost every single open source project that is the basis for really successful commercial open source companies is licensed very permissively and you know there's there's different governance models and there's there's you know you could put the project in a foundation or you could decide to continue to manage and govern it yourself as a company but when you open source something and you start to see this kind of diverse community form you have a very high degree and a high bar of trust uh that that uh gets developed with many different types of stakeholders and you know, it's really hard to be successful as a company uh, when you serve customers who wanna pay you money for goods and services based on your open source. uh, If you mismanage and you sort of uh, betray the social contracts and the trust that you have with many different stakeholders. So personally, I believe it's, it's really a mistake to go and say, look, cloud providers are taking too big of a slice of the pie and they're being greedy. And instead of dealing with this, we're just gonna change our license. Personally, I think that's a mistake. The reason I think that's a mistake is cloud providers provide far more value to those open source communities than they harm. And, 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 And I think this is completely orthogonal to whether or not they contribute code or energy back to the projects. I think what it is much more related to is the fact that you have this indirect distribution leverage, credibility, brand leverage, and overall awareness boost that happens when, frankly, any open source technology gets adopted by a major cloud provider and offered up as a first-class service. Um, So personally, I think commercial open source vendors and companies and founders are much better off actually embracing those types of, you know, definitely competitive occurrences and partnering with cloud providers, actually helping them be successful. Because this is sort of the the way I roughly look at it. Cloud providers are generalists, and they have very broad, buffet-style portfolios of services and offerings. However, if you look at a cost company, really, it's the exact opposite dynamic. Cost companies go very, very deep, and they are deep specialists on a specific type of technology That could very well be horizontal, could be encompassing many markets and many verticals, but they're deep on that technology. They're deep on that solution. And as a result, what happens is they're able to build a superior service. They're able to build the best quality experience. They're able to out-innovate in terms of the technology, and they're able to win the hearts and minds of customers uh, far more deeply and extensively than Frankly, a cloud provider would just by proxy of having you know, a million customers and a distribution base. Right. Um, and so we're always going to see value capture differences. But I guess as the final thing I'll mention here that really confuses and frustrates me on, on this specific topic, let's take, for example, Apple and Google uh, and the cartels that they uh, that they manage in the App Store and Google Play Store. right? Um, Almost every mobile application company, platform, service that's coming out, and there's hundreds of billions in revenue generated on these platforms now. They have to pay somewhere between 15 and 30% of their revenue to Apple and Google just in order to get their products that Apple and Google did not build a single line of code for distributed on those platforms because we have vertical integration from the hardware all the way up through to the distribution of the app stores, uh, respectively, uh, Apple App Store and Google Play for Android. And we don't see remotely anywhere near the same level of you know, vitriol and angst and frustration from those companies that have to pay that basically cartel tax. Now, look at the flip side with commercial open source. When you have this intuition or feeling that a cloud provider is taking too much of a slice of pie, Fundamentally, what's happening there is you're being irrational. You're making a completely irrational conclusion. Um, Fundamentally, open source is a value creation paradigm. It creates value for many stakeholders. And fundamentally, it is also impossible to quantitatively measure the amount of value created for all those stakeholders. I think Red Hat put out a report pretty recently that was pretty thorough that said that Just Red Hat Enterprise Linux, RHEL, not Linux, but just their distribution of Linux, has created $10 trillion in value for businesses that may have been on a yearly basis, not not just um, uh, over time. That's just Linux. Now let's look at all the other open source technologies. It's in the hundreds of trillions of dollars of value for global business that's been created. And so you can't make the assertion that it's quote unquote unfair for a cloud provider to be capturing some tiny slice of the value of a much larger pie that you're also capturing a tiny slice of the value in. So I think it's kind of like a, a market dynamics and like a fundamental confusion sort of thing that a lot of VCs and a lot of boards are pressuring and pushing founders to start off with a source-available license at the core. And by the way, I'm not actually ideologically against that. I have no resistance to this approach. In fact, you know, this is kind of indistinguishable from just building a normal, traditional proprietary software company, which is also completely fine. It works really well uh, for our thesis at our at our fund and what we're building. Um, you know, we 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 view that as indistinguishable from proprietary software. I do personally believe that there is a really great and powerful place, and in fact, many places to apply source available licensing uh, in areas where you feel there is very significant business differentiation. So for example, Confluent uses source available licensing in projects like KSQL and a few other places around the very permissively licensed open source Apache 2.0 Apache Kafka project. And that set of decisions has delivered really great returns and, and it works really well for Confluent. Um, you know, I think that for companies where you have every single source code commit coming primarily you know, 95 plus percent from just one company, like MongoDB's case, uh, the dynamics are a little bit different. So I wouldn't cast judgment. Um, and also, frankly, specifically with the SSPL, I really do believe it's kind of splitting hairs in terms of, you know, is is that an open source license versus uh, a source available license? I personally believe I'd tip it more in the open source license camp um, because it shares so many similarities to the Afero GPL, the AGPL license that uh, Mongo previously used uh, uh, for licensing MongoDB. Um, But those are just some general thoughts on this. Again, these are my personal thoughts uh, my partner Heather Meeker has slightly different thoughts on this. My partner Bruce Perrins, uh, the, the co-founder of Open Source, has slightly different thoughts on this. Uh, <laughs> other folks on our team have different thoughts, but we all love each other still, and we we love having these conversations.
0: Yep, yeah. Well, listen, hey, uh, we're going to wrap up. Just uh, I, I know you're busy. We're we're gonna we're gonna run out of time here. Real quick, um, give give me a quick plug. Best place for folks who. Uh, I know you guys do uh, are, are going to be cranking up again a podcast to talk about this. You've got an event that you do. Uh, real quick, what, what are the best ways for folks to uh, to engage in those things?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I'd say the main place that you can find me personally on the internet is at Asyncio, a s y n c h i o on Twitter. I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter. I, I learn a lot. And I I meet a lot of really smart people on Twitter. I really enjoy uh, my Twitter experience. Um, but the, the, the place where you can find a lot of the content and blogs and research uh, and media and also just a growing community of everyone interested in this commercial open source category is at costs. That's C-O-S-S dot community. Uh, any browser will take you there. So coss.community And uh, you, you can join there, create an account, start chatting with folks. We just uploaded uh, this week 100 plus hours of content from the second open course summit that happened, um, uh, in December, uh, in 2020. And we're also, um, excited to have the third annual open course summit happen just before Thanksgiving this year. Uh, It's going to be digital again. So we're working on ways to make that digital experience really cool for people. Um, and that's, uh, uh, November, 2021.
0: Very cool. Very, very cool. Listen, JJ, it is always good to, uh, to catch up with you, pick your brain a little bit. I wish we could do it more, but uh, thank you so much for for all the insight, kind of all the perspective. It it gives us, it's good for us to kind of get a a bigger view of of kind of how all this goes together, get past all the headlines. But uh, thank you so much for the time today. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, folks, with that, we're going to wrap it up uh, for myself and Aaron. We want to thank, uh, thank Joseph again for his time. You know, as always, thank you for telling a friend about the show. Thank you for telling friends about the new Cloudcast Basics that we're rolling out. And if you get a chance to give it a, a rating on, on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your shows from, we would really appreciate it. And with that, we will talk to you next week.
1: Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and
0: everything social media.